declare to you what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This life was revealed and we have seen it and testified to it, declaring to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. We declare to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. First letter of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Every story brings joy. Every story. And when I say joy, I do not mean some silly happiness. I do not mean even absence of tragedy and loss and disaster. Our most memorable stories, the ones that stick with you, the ones that you remember, are actually, most of the time, your worst stories in life. Those are the ones that stand out. Not the happy, carefree, uneventful stories. The disaster stories. Because disaster stories, the worst times of life, are the ones that define you. They tell you what purpose you have in this world. They're the ones who mark, those stories are the ones that mark time for you. And ultimately, those stories are the ones that connect you to God. It's those stories. Is the Peanuts gang line of story of Jesus out of Luke chapter 2, is that a joyous story? Well, yeah. 2,000 years after Mary and Jesus and Joseph were there in the manger that night with a food trough. I mean, 2,000 years later, it sounds like a wonderful story. And the answer is, yeah. Angels are singing. The shepherds are shepherding whatever they do and worshiping God. And, you know, the stars are brightly shining. The cattle are lowing in four-part harmony. It's all beautiful. <laughs> but, you know, you think back 2,000 years ago, that night when Mary gave birth, it is not a joyous story. You know, for starters, she just traveled, forced by the Roman Empire to go back for a census to Bethlehem, to Joseph's hometown. She just rode 75 miles on the back of a donkey, nine months pregnant, we assume. Now, have you ever ridden a donkey? I, I have. I think when I got done riding a donkey all day long, I was ready to give birth. You know, you know what I mean? That is not fun. And, uh, and then, of course, you need to think of Joseph's side. Because they're going back to Bethlehem, his hometown, where all of his distant relatives still live. And we all know how this goes, so beautiful and so precious. Because here you show up with your fiancé who's pregnant out of wedlock, and probably not by you, rumor has it. Oh yeah, distant relatives are really kind to people like that. They have nothing bad to say, except for, what are you doing taking up with this harlot and ruining the family name? Not too joyous. Mary, Joseph, Jesus, the very unjoyous, painful, scary story. It doesn't even end with Bethlehem because within a few weeks, or we don't really actually know how long, a few months perhaps, these magi from the east, the wise men come, and, and they tell King Herod, looking for directions, they clue him into the fact that there is a new king born. Well, King Herod's not too excited about that. So, of course, you know, this sounds like some junta today or whatever. He just has the, all of the baby Firstborn males slaughtered in Bethlehem that are under two years old. Just like that. So, Mary and Joseph find out. 
They take baby Jesus. They flee to Egypt. On the run. On the run. You know, we'll never know. But perhaps years later, years later, Mary and Joseph could sit around the kitchen table and retell these harrowing stories. And then maybe a small smile would creep across their face and they'd wag their head and maybe shed a tear and think it's unimaginable. And how could it happen to them? And who is their son? And what does all this mean? And ponder it in their heart. And then they would sit there at the kitchen table and you know how this goes if you've ever done this. Slowly, slowly a welling up of some kind of deep sense of joy comes when you tell the worst of times about your life and you endured through it. Somehow a joy comes. A joy comes. And you begin to realize that you've been in the hand of God your entire life if you think deeply enough about it. Now, 2,000 years later, Christmas is a wonderful holiday, and when we say joy, we mean fun, really. But we're trying today to get back to the deeper meaning of what we mean when we say joy. And, you know, church loves Christmas. We all love Christmas. Our nation loves Christmas. The retailers love Christmas. Everyone loves Christmas, you know, and it's all a happy scene. And, and so, you know, here we are in these decorations and so forth, and we have this stained glass window uh, of Jesus and, and uh, Mary. But we picked this particular image um, because if you look at it, I think it looks this way, you can see a little bit of backstory in it. They have a little bit of thought that says there's more to us than what meets the eye. We, we got some mileage, you know, kind of a Mona Lisa type smile or expression, just something deeper, and you don't hold, know the whole story. That's what we're talking about when we talk about the joy of Christmas. Thoughtful enough, thoughtful enough, but there's more. You see, everyone, in order to experience joy in life, in order to experience joy, you, you've got to go through the valley of the shadow of death. You just do. It's the way it goes. The 16th century Spanish Christian mystic John of the Cross quotes the Apostle Paul uh, actually out of Ephesians. And the Apostle Paul said this. John the Cross is saying it. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of the wisdom and knowledge of God. But, John says, the soul cannot enter into these treasures nor attain them unless it first crosses into and enters the thicket of suffering. You can't get to the treasure until you go through the thicket. All the treasures of Jesus await us, but to get there, you've got to go through some sort of loss. Anyone who tells you the Christian life is problem-free and is happy, shiny, and nothing ever goes wrong because of Jesus has never, you know, just doesn't have enough mileage on them. They actually don't even, I don't think they know the real God. And I don't think they know what story they're really in. All of the best spiritual giants out there talk the way John of the Cross talks. The thicket of suffering. Then comes the joy. 
And that's why we find even in Scripture, it says, Consider it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials. Because, because on the back side, if you endure, there comes a joy. If you endure, it's the enduring that we all have to do right now. The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings author, J.R.R. Tolkien, this is your nerd alert. Uh, the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings author, J.R.R. Tolkien, calls this thicket of suffering, he calls it a eucatastrophe. He actually made up the word. And if you're Tolkien, you can make up words because you're cool enough. And a eucatastrophe is a happy ending uh, that every story, he says, has to have. There is no good story without the eucatastrophe. All myths in human history have the eucatastrophe. And you in Greek means good. So this is a good catastrophe. You know, you like euphemism or euthanasia. Wait, not euthanasia. You means good in Greek. And um, <laughs> Tolkien says that every one of us in our life are living out a eucatastrophe. And it connects to the larger eucatastrophe of all of human history. That all of us are connected through this one good disaster, which is really interesting. And as a matter of fact, if you study mythology, what you'll find is that in every culture, African, Chinese, European, every culture out there has the same myth story. And I need, this is the nerd alerts getting deeper, I need to mention Star Wars at this moment because George Lucas ripped off right out of his college textbook the, this grand myth. And here's the way it goes. There is a young man who's living in the backwaters of the world somewhere, or some other world, and by circumstances not his own, he gets caught up in a great epic journey, way beyond his uh, ability. And ultimately, this young, naive warrior, who's on his way to being a warrior, must come face to face, and in the King Arthur myth, it's Knight Basil must face Knight Basil and defeat him. And somehow he is deeply connected identity-wise to the Knight Basil that he must defeat. Need I say, I am your father? Um, and then if it goes well, and sometimes the myths depart here, if it goes well, he becomes king and eventually wise sage. That's the same story in Chinese with the story of the way west it's the same story in African tribal myths and it's the same in European all of cultures have this same eucatastrophe going on and so Lord of the Rings and Star Wars and all the rest of the best stories out there all take advantage of this it's the same story all of them are this way in the Bible we all started in the Garden of Eden but then we fell into shadow and we wandered in the desert and we worshipped idols of wood and stone and for, forgot some things that should have never been forgotten. Like who we belong to and what the supreme story is and who we're connected to and the greater story of all eternity. And we find ourselves living in a lost story, a disaster. And then, just when we least expect it, along comes a man who reminds us and brings us back on track to the story we ought to be. Tolkien says that the Christmas story, the Christmas story is the eucatastrophe of humanity. It is the eucatastrophe of humanity. Tolkien says then 
that, that's all of our story. And then he says, Easter is the eucatastrophe, the good disaster of Jesus himself. All is lost. All of his friends have left him. He's being nailed to a cross, and he lies now dead, decaying in a silent black tomb. And then, and then, and then he rises to new life, unimaginable and glorious. Our story, everyone, is back on track because of Christmas. Christmas reconnects us to the joyous story that is a part of the world. And I tell you all this, brothers and sisters, because this is the answer to those of you who are going through right now perhaps the darkest, terriblest times of your life. Tremendous loss. Things have gone way off the tracks. And you don't know what story you're in, and you don't think anybody cares. And certainly God is somewhere far, far away. Some of you have lost a child. Some have now lost both your parents. And some have had life-altering illnesses. And some have lost relationships and loves and hopes and home. Some don't have enough money for a Merry Christmas. And some must fight depression and mental illness and other things and demons within. And you say, how could I ever have a happy ever after? This is not a good story. This is no eucatastrophe. It's just catastrophe. But every single one of those catastrophes begins to tell you who you are. It marks time and tells you what story you're in. Even in the valley of the shadow of death, in the thicket of suffering, in your, in your catastrophe. You are not an accident in God's grand story. You belong to God. You belong. Here on earth. Lori and I have one single feature in our marriage and our life together, one theme, and it's called childlessness. Without going into a lot of detail, it was childlessness that drove us to China to adopt our two children years ago. But that was not before thousands and thousands of dollars and doctors and treatments and wondering what was going on. And then and then just weeks before we launched Lakeland Community Church, way back in the 90s, we needed a break. And so we took all of our American Express points from Lori's work travel, and we took off for an island to go sit on a beach and do nothing. I still remember we showed up, we dropped our bags, and we walked out the patio door, and there was a turquoise sea that I'd never seen before in my life and a hammock strung between two palm trees and we fell asleep for well over an hour, both of us swinging in the breeze. Perfect. Before the trip was over, my wife was miscarrying. She wasn't supposed to be pregnant. And I found myself on the crew boat at 10.30 at night with my wife laying below some workers playing dominoes while she was dying. And I was praying the silent prayer that all husbands have to pray, I guess, sometime in their life. Please don't let her die, Lord. She had no strength to even get up. And then I got her into a hospital with no screens on it, mosquitoes flying around that night at midnight, with cockroaches and chickens running around below the bed. Just like those nightmares and dreams you have where you feel like you can't do anything and everything's going wrong, I was living it. Days later, I barely got her onto a Delta flight, and I never felt so joyous when we sat down in that seat 
and we were getting out of that country. Fast forward to this number, 1923. 1923 is the room number that Lori and I remember in Chengdu, China. Hotel room 1923. We'll never forget it. It was a miserable place. Beautiful hotel, miserable time. Because I walked the halls afternoon and evening and morning with a small baby, a little bitty Chinese girl, saying the only Chinese words I'd ever memorized. Buku bao bao, buku. Don't cry, baby. Don't cry. An inconsolable little girl who had no idea what was going on in her life. Orphaned, orphaned again, and now with strange people. Fast forward again, just the last year, and the, and the catastrophe continues. This time it's cancer. And once again, a husband's praying, please don't let her die, Lord, not now. And then, if that isn't enough, a few weeks ago, we lost my mother's wife, uh, my wife's mother, to cancer. I say all this to say, but life is good. And like good old Job, I can only say, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. What else can I do? Shake an angry fist at heaven and say, I don't believe in you? Does that make any difference? Like all Jews of old in the Old Testament, the only thing we can ever do as Christians is say, though you slay me, I cling to you. What else can we say? Thank you, Father, because I've actually had such a wonderful, great life. It's been good. These days, my wife is healthy. <clears throat> my daughter practices Christmas carols on her viola in the living room. My son sits by the Christmas tree at night, shaking boxes and sniffing packages, and yes, at times, actually licking them. <laughs> I kid you not. Here's a joyous tradition of mine. This is part of my story, too. On Christmas Eve, late at night, and there's more backstory to it, which I won't go into it. But at this time of year, one of my most joyous traditions, I look forward to it all year long. Late at night, on Christmas Eve, the night before Christmas, usually 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, sometimes it was 10.30. I used to be all alone. My wife would go to bed, and it was before we had kids, and now everybody goes to bed, and Lori now shares this with me. I'll pull out the old black and white Alistair Sims, 1951, Dickens, A Christmas Carol, A Christmas Ghost Story. And I'll watch the old black and white film. I know I say this every year, and I can't help it because it's so powerful. I believe I love the Dickens film, A Christmas Carol, that story, that little ghost story, because it reminds me that life is short, that Ebenezer Scrooge realizes his life is short, and he only has a few years to live, and he's wasted most of his life, missed opportunities to love and to cherish and, and to share and to be generous. Life is too short, the movie reminds me, to be Scrooge-like, to be bitter and cranky and miserly and selfish and judgmental and mean-spirited. Life is too short to live like that. It's not worth it walking around angry and bitter. And second, the, the movie reminds me that Dickens' little tale reminds us that, that the entire world changes, that the entire world changes, that people can change because of Jesus' birth. Because of Christmas, we live in the eucatastrophe. We live in the joyous story because of Christmas, because of Jesus. And Dickens' little tale reminds me of that every year. 
and I wait for the excitement of it. And my favorite scene in the film comes when Ebenezer, Ebenezer Scrooge becomes a new man on Christmas morning. Marley, his old partner, comes and tells him that you're going to be visited by three spirits. He says, I could pass, right? He says, not really. And that night, the three spirits of Christmas come and show him his entire life story. And he thinks he's missed Christmas the next morning when he wakes up. He thinks it's past and he missed the whole thing. And he finds out it really is Christmas Day. And the spirits all came in one night. And he is reborn and has a chance to live differently. Everything is new to him. He has no idea what to think. He now knows he knows nothing. It reminds me, I don't know anything but joy. Even in the catastrophes and loss and suffering. And my life's been good compared to some of yours. Christmas changes people. And by the way, Charles Dickens himself changed London. In December of 1843, Charles Dickens, who wasn't very good at managing money, just like his father, owed his publisher a pile of money. And he didn't know what to do, but he knew he had to write something. And so in December of 1843, he wrote, uh, he began a book called A Christmas Carol, and he wrote it in daily installments, because he actually didn't know how the story was going to end. And he wrote the articles and published them in the paper every day. It's a thin little tiny book, A Christmas Carol. And it became a favorite. And Dickens had figured out how to tell a joyous story that needled in to London society and to the wealthy and to the influential. And he began to change their minds about the poor. Through funny, poignant stories like Oliver Twist and A Christmas Carol, Dickens pretty much single-handedly eliminated debtor's prisons, child slavery, union sweatshops, workhouses, the treadmill, and the poor law in England, single-handedly through these stories like A Christmas Carol. Because of his father's debt, um, Dickens knew all about this himself because his father was thrown into debtor's prison. I have no idea how you're ever supposed to pay off your debt when you're thrown into debtor's prison. I don't really think it's a really smart strategy, but maybe I don't know anything about it. Nonetheless, that made Dickens himself at 11 years old an orphan, and he was cast out on the streets. Or he could go actually live in prison with his dad. Instead, he went to work down on the Thames River, below waterline, in the bottom of a warehouse, 12 hours a day in the dark, painting, uh, gluing labels on shoe black bottles for two years. There and on the street, he met guys like the Artful Dodger and all the other characters in his books. There, he realized that the poor were good people. They just didn't have any opportunity. When Charles Dickens died at, in 1870 of a stroke at age 58, the entire country of England mourned his death and he was given this epitaph which was echoed over and over. He was sympathizer to the poor, the suffering and the oppressed and by his death one of England's greatest writers is lost to the world. You catastrophe everyone. His own story was a tragedy, and yet he changed the world with his life. You and I have been given this one opportunity, this one life. And it's a catastrophe at times, and there's loss and suffering, and yet you and I are called to change the world. So here's what we have to do during Christmas. 
It's very simple. I've been telling you things that you're going to do anyway the last couple of weeks. Like, one, go shopping. Like, that's cool. Really smart of me. And then, like, uh, do hospitality. Like, okay, that was really brilliant because you're already going to do that too. Well, this week I'm giving you another thing you're already going to do. You're going to share stories during Christmas. You just will. You get family together, and you're going to talk about the family vacations and the campouts and all the disasters in your life. I mean, you'll share maybe some good stories, but mostly you'll share all the disasters. What your dad did wrong, what your mom did wrong, and, you know, what grandma did wrong, and all that. That's what families do. It's totally natural because it's telling you where you belong and, and how you, what story you're in. So when you gather, when you gather around Christmas this season, make sure you share the best stories. When you gather at Christmas this season, share the stories. Like, like this, and I'll just give you an example. Here's a photo of the Wilburn family vacation in 2007. Oh, yes, don't they look happy? It's a wonderful story. We're camping out in Colorado. The Aspener, Aspenine and Pinene, and the, it snows, and it rains, and there's bears and cougars. But we're happy, and it's all wonderful, and we're camping, and families are supposed to camp. Except about three minutes after this picture was taken, it starts sprinkling. Just a nice, beautiful fall sprinkle. And so we start walking back to camp. Well, we were ready to get back before it really starts raining. And so we take a shortcut. And I come to a boulder uh, about the size of this platform, about 12 foot or so around. And it's at about a 45 degree angle. And below it is a 20 foot crashing river, a stream with boulders and everything. And I'm pretty good hiking and camping. I've camped my whole life and so forth. And so <clears throat> I step on this granite boulder. I have never fallen, fallen on my butt so fast in all of my life. No, but I didn't just fall. I had hold of my four-year-old son's hand. And the next split second, I found my head and shoulders hanging over the end of the boulder precariously over the stream, holding on to my four-year-old son who's screaming up there, who was actually grabbed and held on to by my wife, which pulled her down, who she was holding on to our six-year-old daughter. The entire family is splayed on this, and I'm upside down, leaning over, and it felt like the most natural thing to do would be just flip my legs over and call it quits. <laughs> Except for the four-year-old. And there's the blood and the crying and all of that's going on. And it's all messed up. I can't tell you this day how we got out of it, except that a few months later, I finally went to the chiropractor and got everything straightened out. <laughs> but to this day, if you walk up to my daughter and you say, the family fall, she'll roll her eyes and say, I hate camping. <laughs> that story has defined us. <clears throat> and we laugh about it now, but in the moment, it was a disaster. It was a disaster. This is the kind of stories you have to share. This is the sort of thing that defines you. The worst of times have the good ending, the eucatastrophe. And so when you gather around the Advent candle, if you're doing this sort of thing, tonight you're going to be asked, which by the way, here's your homework assignment. You're supposed to go home and find, get on your computer or in a photo album or whatever, or dig through the kitchen drawer, and find those pictures of a family vacation or a wedding, you know, where uh, the bride pukes or something. But find some stories that just didn't turn out right. But now you can kind of smile about them. It's kind of tough because I know we have other stories where you'll never smile about them. You know? But find those and bring those to the Advent wreath as you gather around to share and tell those stories because that's what makes Christmas beautiful.
This is what makes it a holiday. This is what makes Christmas remembered. Where our eucatastrophe connects with Jesus' eucatastrophe, and we're all bound up in the same story. This is what brings meaning to the holiday. When something so bad somehow turns out right, and we can't explain it, that will make you a family. That will make you a church. That will make you a human being. Work at it and get it done. And you'll be like John, telling the early church, saying what we've heard and what we've seen with our eyes and what we've looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, this Jesus, he came and he changed the world. And I want to tell you all about it. Would you stand with me, please? And we'll leave each other uh, with this blessing that I'd love to have you join me in. So share it with yourself and with your family and with everybody in the room. So join me, please. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.